Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An Internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is the creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show and watch your life grow. We're back, ladies and gentlemen, on the Philippe Matthews Radio Show. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are around the world. Rachel Dolezal is with me. She holds an MSA from Howard University. She is a licensed intercultural competency and diversity trainer dedicated to racial and social justice activism. She is the former director of education at the Human Rights Education Institute in Idaho and has served as a consultant for human rights education uh, and inclusivity in regional public schools in 2005. Dolezal taught, uh, I'm sorry, 2015, uh, taught African studies at Eastern Washington University, was the uh, president of the uh, Spokane, Washington chapter of the NAACP. She is now the author of uh, her memoir, her autobiography in full color, Finding My Place in a White, in a, in a Black and White World. Welcome, Rachel Dolezal. Thank you. All right. Well, I, as I told you, got the book late, and I got up to page 141, and it's the most highlighted, ear, earmarked uh, book I could ever imagine. I have to say for the people listening, this is a book that I think you must read, rather than whatever you have heard from the media, whatever conclusions you may have come to and not come, come to, reading your story uh, and, and how you came to, to, to be, if you will, uh, is painful, was painful to read, uh, but it was also powerful to read. And I commend you on what you have gone through, not just, recently in terms of being outed as a white woman, but what you have gone through in your childhood. Um, can you talk to us a little bit mm-hmm. about, well, let's see, what should we start? You, you, you say uh, in the prologue, after a lifetime spent developing my true identity, I know nothing about, uh, I know nothing about whiteness describes who I was. After all, I didn't identify as African-American. I identified as black. What does that mean that you identified as black? And what's the difference between, in your opinion, black and African-American? Yeah, well, I think that um, you're right that there's, there's so much that, that people just did not know about me or my story. And, and a lot of conclusions were reached somewhat prematurely because of that. And, and I really do start out with, with my childhood just from the beginning um, you know, and, and tell the whole truth, as messy as it is. Um, it was and there was just, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of pain. I, I certainly didn't have that uh, Cinderella, silver spoon type, you know, upbringing that people, you know, some people have assumed that I had. And and that's um, been very um, influential just in, in who I am. I'm very down to earth. I'm very practical. I'm also a fierce ally and advocate for people who are marginalized or have, have felt pain because I've, I've felt pain. And, and, you know, once you feel that on a deep level, 
you, um, you know, just, it just shapes you and helps you to be present for other people who, who are going through um, difficulty or struggle. So, so I think that that's, you know, significant when you, when you ask um, what, what the difference is between say African-American and black, I think, you know, one of the differences to me is, you know, as a race and culture studies professor for, for years, I really embrace the worldview that race is a, is a social construct, not just in theory, but I mean, it really is. It's a political reality that's been disguised as a biological one in order to leverage power and privilege. And I, you know, I reject that white supremacy hierarchy and um, what's left then after race is acknowledged as human as one family, then there's philosophy and culture and politics and, um, you know, there's this, this black and white divide socially in, in America, and I fall very unapologetically on the black side of, of all of those issues. And um, like like the Gregory said, you know, the, the state of mind, you know, versus the race, like white isn't a race, it's a state of mind. And Steve Biko earlier said something similar, blackness isn't pigmentation, it's a, a mental attitude. And and to me, you know, that, that's the the big picture, the Pan-African diaspora. Um, but one of the key differences between, say, African-American um, in, in Black history uh, teaching, uh, that particular term would be most used um, in a timeline of people who had ancestors who were enslaved during the child slavery area, era here in America and then after emancipation um, became citizens as African American citizens, and so it's kind of a, a time limited um, term. And it's also, I think, you know, say if reparations, for example, were to actually happen you know, after 150 years of not happening, mm-hmm. um, if that was actually to ha- to take place in some form, which it still should, because that score never being settled continues to perpetuate this, you know, the disproportionalities and everything. I wouldn't, you know, be receiving reparations. Neither would somebody who, say, immigrated from Nigeria two years ago or whatever. So there, are, there's a difference in um, in terminology. I think to, to some people it's kind of like splitting hairs, but but I think some mm-hmm. of those differences are are important. So, well, you you quote uh, I know you love the scholar Dorothy Roberts, who's going to be coming on the show. Uh, she says race is not a biological category that is uh, politically charged. It's a political mm-hmm. category that has been disguised as a biological. Exactly. Um, so, 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 so here's the rub, I guess. People are saying, well, okay, Rachel, we understand that. We also respect what you have done and contributed to the black community, particularly uh, through your work with the NAACP. But there is a biological component to it when you bring in the term melanin. Uh, and so I think that's probably that that um, that split that you were talking about between black and African American. How do you mm-hmm. how do you adjust for that? How do you speak to that aspect of that the biological component of melanin is biological? Uh, but yeah, race is a construct. We understand that from you know the anti-miscegenation laws of 1681 and 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 when white mm-hmm. people were literally invented as a race of of, of humanity. So. Mm-hmm. It's a lot, you know. You have to know both white history, black history, and true history because there's a lot of stuff floating around. How do you reconcile? Right. Well, I think that what you just mentioned, um, you know, really 
is the conversation of colorism, and that's that's something that gets kind of confused with you know the discussion about race, and and I think that what people have been talking about when they say, well, um, you can only cross the color line um, if you're if you're white, you can cross into like being white skinned black, but you can't go the other way, which of course actually in history most people have gone the other way. But that little that range of of you know, possessing less melanin, if you will, um, lighter skin privilege or white privilege as far as colorism goes, is real. You know, there there's there's this kind of like spectrum of um ethnically indeterminate, like an ethnically indeterminate zone. And people then have to assert personal agency to express, you know, their affiliations and allegiances. Um, and in some cases, you know, if if a person with a black parent um, appears white, you know, sometimes people argue with them about whether they, you know, even, even have a, a black parent. Or in my case, you know, people would, would often um, question when I actually didn't even understand that race was a social construct. When I was doing advocacy work in Mississippi, I was explaining that I was, you know, born white and on this mountainside, but I had this connection with justice issues and black history. And people were just kind of like, nah, you aren't really white. You know, like, like people would argue with me and, and try to convince me I was passing more white or, you know, had to have some kind of quote unquote like black blood in order to even have that level of connection or or compassion or care or, you know, empathy. So, um, you know, I think there, there is uh, definitely a visual component. We visualize and racialize. It's, race is a doing, it's a behavior. And so on the spectrum of colorism, the darker your pigment, the, you know, the more um, stereotypically black associations are going to be made from other people, especially people who engage in racially profiling. So Mm -hmm. with, with regards to police, with regards to, you know, I mean, if I got pulled over by the police, I was marked black, unidentifiable, sometimes white, you know, it was, it was like a, uh, just dependent on the officer, what he, what decision he made in two seconds when he looked at me. Um, And I think people on that, on that color, on that kind of, you know, hovering on the color line, no matter what their um, parents, you know, claimed or were, I think do experience it kind of from both sides, you know, like not being black enough, not being white enough and getting questioned about like, what are you Mm -hmm. um, throughout life, you know? So, so there's that kind of a conversation that I think is, is important to have, you know, at, at the same time, we're talking about race as a social construct. There's a, kind of increasing population of people who are racially ambiguous as far as how they visually appear. Yeah. Well, you you say in the, in the, in your prologue that you identify uh, as, as one race while uh, the world insists, uh, you know, that, that you're another, and it really underscores the psychological harm uh, from the concept of that, that race inflicts. Um, so you know, here, so here here is another part of that rub, and I think that you obviously know what that feels like, and that is, um, so much has been taken away from uh, uh, from us, from Black folk, uh, mm-hmm. that 
uh, so much has been stolen, so much has been lost uh, in in terms of history, and then it's like, okay, well, now you want to now you want to take our blackness too, racial. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's kind of like you're fighting um, a battle that you really can't win. Unfortunately, you're in it. Um, but I had a conversation with uh, one of my regular guests on my show, Imona Yezreal, and, and and she says, well, Philippe, you have to remember. Um, there's there's been uh, books written on 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 much of the history of many black women who mm-hmm. uh, uh, tried to pass uh, as white and and did successfully pass as white right. uh, in order to survive uh, uh, in, in this racial construct. Would you accept the possibility of being uh, ahead of your time, if you will, that? If America were to ever turn uh, completely and exclusively black or brown, that you would represent what the new quote-unquote white woman would have to look like and be like in order to integrate into an all-black society. Well, it's hard to, you know, play um, kind of fortune teller or whatever and see into the future. But, yeah, perhaps perhaps there will be some, you know, increased... Um, proclivity toward transracialism, if you were, I mean, I, it's not my favorite term, but thrown out. Well, I was going to ask you, because that's the term that's or, what, what does that mean, transracial? <laughs> right. what, well, I mean, I that's think, not I a think good term, I don't think. We listen, we listen no. to the, the term transgender, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, so I'm going out with, a, uh, I thought I was going out with a sister, but I'm actually going out with a white woman who is like a sister, but oh, I'm so confused. It'd be like, you know, you go out with a, a gal and it turns out she's a guy. It's like, mm. you know, it's not a good feeling, not a good look. Walk, walk us through. <laughs> walk us through. Well, no, 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 exactly no harm to the transgender world. <laughs> Please don't write letters. Uh, but the, the whole trans thing, work with me on trans racism. Or racial you know, trans, trans is, you know, even when we talk about transatlantic, I mean, trans means, um, across, you know, between, you know, it, it represents fluidity, right? So that's, I think that that, that that prefix is useful in representing that. I like Melissa Harris-Perry's um, trans-black suggestion as perhaps maybe a more accurate descriptor just because it, it more represents like, okay, you were born categorized as white, you have an authentic black identity that's, you know, trans-black as opposed to trans-racial just because I reject the race worldview and, you know, the hierarchy of, of white supremacy. So, you know, trans, transracial to me would be like transhuman and that doesn't make sense. Um, however, as society does things, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what makes sense to me as much as what makes sense to the majority of people using these words. And I think that, you know, people don't really, uh, you know, black is fine. Trans black is fine. Transracial. I'm even okay with that. Is that, is that, is how people want to term somebody born into, you know, one category and having a a greater affinity affinity with another category. Um, But at the end of the day, I would say, you you know, you can't really believe that race is a social construct and um, love the term transracial or, or, you know, sort that out. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, in a predominantly, black and brown world if if people present um visually as more european or or lighter skin and and, you know want to fit in i mean i don't know you know maybe the trend will be 
um, for more textured hairstyles and, and that kind of thing. I mean, I think um, it's hard to tell. It's not going to be a trend. At the end of the day, people, I hope, will just be exactly who they are and, and have confidence in that. Um, but, I mean, the, the world has never actually gone in a direction of um, a, a so-called racial hierarchy where, uh, it, you know, it wasn't white supremacy. So it's hard to, to kind of tell how that would, I would hope that it would, it would um, result in more equity and more inclusion, you know, rather than just kind of a, a different uh, shuffling of um, prejudices and, you know, discriminations and so forth. But, you know, it's hard to tell. That's, that's just kind of like a hypothetical future prediction. One of the, uh, one, in the, in the quote that I mentioned earlier, where you say, I know nothing about whiteness describes, uh, describes who I was. Um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of work with um, uh, Dr. Jacqueline Battalore, who uh, is a law professor and, and former Chicago police officer. She uh, remembers in 1998 where she discovered, if you will, white people becoming an actual legalized race uh, of people. Mm-hmm. Started doing this research and her work uh, has been absolutely pivotal in kind of labeling this thing called whiteness. Uh, and mm-hmm. I kind of adopted it uh, uh, because uh, a lot of black people, uh, and I don't want to put words collectively in our mouth, but because of what has happened to us, hate white people uh, mm-hmm. and just can't stand them. And so what we were trying to do is say, okay, can you hate the whiteness in terms of what that represents and what that means as a construct from, from you know, you know, 1664, 1681, and, and, and why this construct was created? Uh, but, be, but be cool with white people in the sense that white people born into this country are duped just as much as black people are duped into believing of this racial hierarchy and this, this, this false biological narrative. So that mm-hmm. being said, um, based upon what you have gone through in your childhood, uh, particularly with your parents adopting, I forgot how many black children, three, four? Four. Mm-hmm. Four. You began to, I, you, you started to develop an awareness of, of, of not just how uh, your brothers and sister, and sister were treated by the outside world, but even how your parents uh, mm-hmm. treated them uh, differently. And so you began, you were forced into a racial identity crisis, if you will, very, very early on. And then coming from hardcore, fundamental Christian, evangelical parents who were, from what I have read in this uh, autobiography, is pretty much abusive people um, and mm-hmm. have really harmed you in the worst ways um, over and over again throughout uh, your life, I guess even particularly um, trying to out you as a white woman uh, as, as before you were ready to do it or if you were ever going to be ready to do it. How did that shape you in terms of looking at this thing called whiteness? Yeah, well, I, I think that... Um... I really attached Christianity to whiteness 
you know, because of the, the close association and which it makes, it makes it really hard for me to go to church now, you know, I mean, ever since I, I left church and, and left my marriage at age 26 and really, um, started to love myself and emancipate myself from some of those, um, some of that upbringing, I think that, you know, I, I really attach the abuse. I attach the pain. I attach, uh, you know, all that to, to not just Jesus, but like white Jesus, you know what I mean? Like this whole mm-hmm. race and religion and patriarchy as well, you know, kind of like wrapped all up into one. And it, and it mm-hmm. just um, vibes with the colonial era, you know, with the chattel slavery, the way in which the curse of ham was used to, you know, as an excuse to subject people from the African continent to oppression. I mean, just all all of the ways in which Christianity was wrapped up with oppression, historically, I saw firsthand, you know, in my family. And it made me, you know, I'm a, a very spiritual person. I've, I've somehow managed to cloister away a, a belief in a creator God and, you know, just keep it very mystical. But the the religion and the patriarchy and the white supremacy just rolled together as one force. And mm-hmm. I was just, just by virtue of being born a girl in the family, I was a second class citizen too. And I think that mm-hmm. the ways in which, um, you know, I was treated differently than my older brother, even in the case of 2015, I mean, it, it's, there are people that, that didn't question the parents at all, but there were some people who took pause to see that basically, you know, the two sisters in the family, one who was born, you know, categorized as white and one who was born categorized as black, both of which we have Larry Dan's names on our birth certificate, you know, mm-hmm. um, were, were fighting this case against, um, you know, it was my sister's case, but again, about sexual assault by our, our older brother. And I stood with her oh, gosh, and, you know, the for them, for, yeah, right. Yeah, but for me to, to witness, you know, to, to, um, have her back and say, you know what, I take her side, even though this is my biological brother, my non-biological sister, um, I'm on this side of the courtroom with her because he did this to me too. And we're the only two girls in the household. And mm-hmm. that really broke the tie and it looked like he would be going to prison you know, as a child molester. And, and that case ended up being dismissed after I was discredited by being called a liar, you know, at the national level um, and a deceiver and a fraud and all these things by the, by the parents. And so, you know, just their willingness to throw me and her under the bus to protect him, which is their only white son and the only, you know, so he has the whiteness and the maleness and also his children, because he's married to a white woman as well. So, you know, the only way that the so-called white um, bloodline or whatever is going to continue. I mean, there have been so many people bashing me for committing white genocide and, you know, ending the white bloodline in the family and all this and that. And <laughs> that race traitor. But, I mean, he he's kind of like the perfect intersection of white and male and, um, you know, everything that they love and support. And um, they don't support blackness. They don't support women. And so, you know, that that was a very clear demonstration uh, on a a big scale, which kind of came um, out of the blue. 
<clears throat> I didn't ever suspect that that was going to be their tactic for shutting down her case. But, um, you know, it, that's, that's what, what happened. And at the end of the day, that's the heartbreak for me, you know, beyond losing my jobs and all this other stuff. I mean, it's, it's really that my little sister never got her day in court. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so all another, the other people that I was... Another white, another having, white rapist goes, um, the child molester goes free. Right. And, yeah. and the judge had, you know, the last hearing we had, the judge um, said that she believed that more than 30 instances had in fact occurred oh and without a fifth count to the charges. I mean, it was looking really um, good for her and really bad for him, you know, and we got the letters that, you know, we're going to need to testify on June 9th. Um, we got the letters, they were dated June 9th and then June 11th, this bomb dropped and Within, you know, just a few weeks, it was all, the DA dropped the case. And, of course, you know, we didn't have any money to hire an attorney or, or you know, kind of maneuver legally any any other direction. It was, uh, it was over. So You say that if you're in, in Chapter 2, page 10, you said if you're having fun, you're sinning. Uh, was a message uh, my parents drilled into my head at a very young age. Um, there was just so many things uh, in this Christian white household um, that would have at least caused you to, once you were able to get out, you know, maybe go to college or whatever, whatever, uh, uh, and never come back again. But I think it was the uh, the the adopting of the, of, of of your four black siblings that really began to to change you and, and and be able to see this huge dichotomy between a black world and a white world because you, that was during the Jim Crow era. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I I always had felt, ever since I can remember, I felt this connection with black is beautiful, black is inspirational, and and I had that really... You know, I mean, it was made clear in the family and at school that that was not a normal perspective or an acceptable one, especially mm-hmm. in an all-white town. Um, you were told so you I, I learned to, right. I learned to hide that um, and repress that. But when when my siblings were adopted, I felt like um, I was able to let that bloom more, you know, like to bring that out. And, and it was a, a reason that made sense to other people. It's like, oh, okay, because she has black siblings. Um, but I was doing it as much for me as I was for them, you know, as far as researching black history and uh, just finding, that's where I found all my heroines were uh, were black women, you know, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Ella Baker, um, Angela Davis, I mean, people who I looked up to had overcome these great odds as women and as black women. And that was my inspiration, you know, for persevering through life, for, um, you know, continuing to kind of aim for a future that would include justice, um, advocacy. And so, yeah, I do describe that in the book, this, you know, kind of, um, growing together and be, with my siblings, growing, nurturing them, and educating myself at the same time about um, history, culture, music, etc. 
Tell me about um, uh, when you were in Bellhaven uh, College, uh, the wonderful story about your friend Nikki, uh, who came to your rescue. Uh, if you remember that story, you were uh, pretty much well into your identification of like, okay, I'm a sister and, and uh, you know, go screw yourself if you don't like it. But there, you were walking past the table, and the white girls were saying, "Who the who, who does she think she is? Wearing a, a, a all of that stupid African shit? Uh, she's not right. black." And your friend Nikki came to your came to your defense. Remember that. Walk us through that moment, if you could. Yeah, well, well, by that time, I was pretty accustomed to being teased, you know, for not fitting in, um, not just in terms of culture, but but other ways too. I mean, I'd grown up poor, and so. You know, I just walked past and I tried to ignore what was being said about me. I was wearing a daishiki and I had my hair braided and I was, I felt pretty. I felt proud. Um, I was a soul sister and, you know, people who saw me as white or people who saw me as light skin, like I didn't really care. I was just focused on, on um, doing the work and um, in the community and on campus, et cetera. But so Nikki was a friend of mine. She's um, on the basketball team. She's tall. Uh, she was walking behind me, and we were both headed towards the the one black table in the cafeteria, which is where we sat because it was in the 90s, literally still, you know, pretty segregated in the cafeteria of Mississippi. So, um, and she just said, basically, like, you know, she spun around and was like, you don't know what you're talking about because Rachel, Rachel's blacker than I am. And, you know, you, and she, she said something about, um, like, you're wearing those tight-ass jeans. You're going to get a yeast, yeast infection. <laughs> Let her wear what she wants to wear. <laughs> um, but it just kind of, like, shut them up because somebody had my back. You know, in that moment, if Nikki would have just kept walking not said anything, it would have given more... Um, momentum, you know, to their mockery of me, just like on campus and in the, in the city, it was very clear that I did not fit in with white Southerners. So, you know, I was like exiled from that group quickly upon arrival. You know? So um, the, que- the question remaining is, is she, you know, what is she? You know, is she albino? Is she light skin? Is she Afrocentric white chick? Like what, what is this girl's deal? And, um, you know, I, I didn't really even it, know that race was, it, was a social was construct then. Was it enough or could it have had been enough just to be an Afrocentric white chick? Because we I mean, mean, have them, you know, it's like, okay, they exist, but, right. you, know, you know, and it's like, that's cool. And, you know, there's Afrocentric uh, mm-hmm. white dudes. Uh, you know uh, that that, yeah. that I know and 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 we hang out. Uh, right. uh, but as 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 the late Bertie Mac would say, you put a hundred on ten because you said no. I'm identifying as black. You want to step mm-hmm. further, uh, and what you know. I guess comment on that if you could in terms of the difference sure. between you know uh, an Afrocentric white chick versus identifying uh, as, as being white, but identifying as black. Yeah. Well, I think that that was, that was kind of a transition phase for me, college. You know, you're trying to find out who you are. Mm-hmm. And I didn't actually even know that race was a social construct, so I felt obligated to explain the long 
very complicated, very confusing story about coming from this mountain. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> you know, and then and people were just clearly not even wanting to hear that. So I just started shrugging and saying, yeah, you know, to whatever whatever people said. I was like, uh-huh. Anyways, um, and then just change the subject or get get back to whatever we were doing. But I noticed that, um, you know, people who people respond to me different. I mean, there were certain stereotypes for categories. Mm-hmm. So if you're a, a mixed chick or light skinned chick, you are you're fast. Um, and some, I mean, as mm-hmm. a virgin, but I got you know like thrown up against drink machines and necked and like all these. I mean, just different like groped and different things on campus by, you know, dudes who thought who assumed this or that just because they thought I was, you know, like light skin from the South or I don't know, you know, and it so there are kind of some some situations that that I went through a little bit more than it wasn't just words on letting some of these assumptions about me ride. But after college I um course was married I got married my senior year and my identity really took a regression because the that was Kevin right af- right Kevin I, the Afrocentrism all that stuff was just whole scale rejected just like just like my parents had and so I you know wanted I didn't want to go to hell and I also didn't want to die you know <laughs> trying to stay alive trying to you were so consistent I mean the religion right. thing the Christianity thing had such a hold on you because obviously oh, yeah. you never would have married so, Kevin had that not have been the situation. No, no. But but I but I think that, you know, just the the very powerful idea that you will, you know, burn in hell for all eternity if if you don't do this or that, you know, by by the rules, that's that's pretty powerful. I mean that's a pretty big threat <laughs> to <laughs> uh, you know, like okay, I you know, put it in perspective a little short time of my life for all I, I don't want to be a pain. Let's do a show about this with Jeremiah Kamara and, 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 and Professor Kavahia Wabakamane on, on, on the God addiction. It's fascinating to hear you talk about this and to read it and, and, and you know, right. that level of, of um, proselytizing is, is, is mm-hmm. amazing uh, to me um, when you uh, – come out of it on, and, and, and look at it for, for what it is. But it, it, well, it, and really the, the, the reason, I mean, what really empowered me to come out of that was my son, you know, right, right. the only, the only way that I could, that I finally decided, you know what, I will go to hell. I'm prepared to actually literally go to hell to protect my child. Yeah, and that's so what it means you were if, being I, if I divorce my husband. Yeah. A lot of people I, don't know, you know that you were physically and emotionally abused by this guy. Uh, and, uh, if I'm, uh, I'm correct in, in what I was reading, he basically wanted you to be, even though I think he was, I think he knew he was, I don't, I don't know. Did he, did you ever reveal to him your, your, uh, uh, your biological, uh, uh race as, as a white woman? Cause clearly he wanted you to be a white woman, not a, a black woman. He says, you know, don't right. stop trying to be so black. Uh, even though you were identifying as black, dressing as a black woman, uh, and and he wanted you to be. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, he was he was that white girl at the table that was like, you know, stop wearing that stupid African shit. <laughs> I mean, that was right, basically right. the same perspective. And unbelievable. And he knew where from I mean, he knew he knew about How long were you married? He knew all that stuff. We were married five years. Okay, all right, that's not a long time, but. Um, 
No, our, our son was three when we got divorced, and, and that's <laughs> why I'm, you know, still here in, in eastern Washington by North Idaho, because he's still in North Idaho. And, and oh, there's those laws, two-hour so, drive laws or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Franklin's now 15, and, you know, he was three when we got divorced, so it's three more years. I know you're the hell out of there. So there's another chapter in the book, and I know you got to go, but I've got, I mean, so ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you, you got to read this book because there are so many stories that are connected to how this woman came to be. And even if you take race completely out of this conversation, it is a story about a woman becoming uh, emancipated, finding her true self, finding true north. It's really an amazing uh, story and journey uh, of what you have gone through. Um, there was, of course, uh, the, your real father versus your biological father. Great story in there about that. Um, mm -hmm. There was another, and, and so this was even harder for me to read. As I said, I just got, you know, got the book, so I'm only on, I'm, I'm at the middle of the book. I'm going to have to have you come back because I'm going to finish the book and I'm going to have more questions. Uh, well, but, the, plot, the plot thickens. You know, not, not I know. I can't wait. I can't wait. End. I'm like, I haven't even got to the photos yet. I'm like, oh, my God, this is insane. But you, this is, this is very painful. We went to San Francisco and uh, ended up getting raped. Right. I mean, what, what, what else have you go, not gone through um, as, as just a woman? Um, and, you know, we, we need to talk about the whole thing with the NAACP and, and the, the pivotal work that you have done there. Um, and, you know, what, was, what is it like on a daily basis right now to be Rachel Dolezal? I'm proud of you for this book, and hopefully that's giving you some level of financial uh, relief. But it, 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 it was pretty hard. Uh, at, at at one point to be Rachel Dolezal. Yeah, well, I mean, it still is. Um, <laughs> okay, I, I haven't, you know, I haven't, as far as I know, I haven't sold enough copies to pay off printing costs, but so there's no financial relief yet. But, you know, it, it's it's difficult just on a daily basis because I'm constantly mocked and ridiculed and, um, you know, kind of uh, misunderstood. I, I feel like a lot of people just see me as the villain and, and want to, you know, stick with their conclusions that, that they've made, even without hearing my full story. And some people are just adamant about not wanting to, uh, you know, even even hear the story at all and not wanting mm. to read it. And mm. um, so, you know, all of that ha is, a, is a certain level of hurt that I, I kind of manage. Um, but But the real focus right now quite honestly just survival you know for how do I provide for my kids um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know I've never it's never been my intention to exploit or degrade or in any way um do anything other than promote and expand the beautiful culture that I love but you know people have have accused me of you know somehow if I make a dime off the book I'm you know exploiting my identity or exploiting blackness or this or that. And it's just like, you know, I have three beautiful black sons and if I am able to provide for them, it would, you know, I'd be proud of that. And, and I don't want my kids to, to, you know, be like starved out just because 
people have issues with how I describe myself. I think it's, it's a little bit unfair in that regard. Um, but I mean, it's hard. It's hard. It's, and I think that when you, when you said, you know, the story of a woman finding her true north, you know, with the demand for me to apologize and to change my identity and to describe myself differently, it's like once you find your true north, once you find the you of you, you find that empowerment and, and you're interconnected and everything in your life, you know, comes together. Um, the questions are answered. You're living in your full authentic self. Like you don't, you can't go back, you know, to a, yeah. a less empowered um, stage of your evolution. Sure. So I can't, I can't give what people are demanding. Like I can't give an apology for who I am because I really feel like that would be suicide. In essence, mm-hmm. I would have to stop living if I really felt sorry, you know, felt like I was an insult to the world. Mm-hmm. Then, mm-hmm. you know, but I have kids, so I can't, that's not an option. Um, Absolutely. So, so we're kind of like a little bit of an impasse with people who, you know, oppose me and you know me continuing to live my life. I mean, it's, it's kind of a uh, a dissonance that I have to live with that on a daily basis, and hope that there will be enough acceptance at some point for me to be employed and uh, continue, you know, to get back to the advocacy work and and um, you know move through society a little bit more fluidly than than I have been able to in the last couple of years. Well, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, I remember doing a show on the um, the the power uh, of, of white supremacy in terms of what it has done to damage us to the point where we can't accept you. And you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. The fact that we that that shows the success of a damaged black brain uh, and a black mind that. Uh, there is so much cognitive dissonance, there's so much hate, uh, so much uh, disdain for what uh, white people or Eurasians have done to us that when we see, uh, uh, if you will, a white woman identifying as a black woman for the first time, it's just, you know, we, we just completely can't, can't handle it. It's just something our brains have never seen before. And it's almost incomprehensible in, in to, to, to deal with. Um, you know, I remember Chris Rock saying, it's, it's a bitch being the first of anything. And you are the first mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, this, uh, I hate the term. We've got to find another term, Rachel, because transracial is just not it. I'm so sorry. I can't, I can't do Racially that. fluid. Yeah, Stop them. Yeah, we're going to have to, yeah, we've got to figure out a name other than trans because that's Am- just too Ambi, Ambi-racial. <laughs> Ambi-racial. I don't know. <laughs> I might like that. That's kind of cool. So, so we've got to find a category where, where you fit. But, but, you know, here you are, one person, one woman, literally taking on at an international level. You didn't just do this in this country. This went around the world. Mm-hmm. At an international level, you represent uh, uh, something that no one has ever seen before, which is fascinating to me because I know, and you know, I know so many white women and so many white guys that I, you do have to sometimes take a double, a double look, mm-hmm. even in their vernacular, even in their, in their colloquialisms, 
it's like, okay, they have a completely identified with the black culture. They've been raised around or they just have said, hey, you know, screw it. I don't like the whiteness that I am. I don't like, great, I, I'm not going to do that. And that's fine. Somehow, though, I think it's because you perhaps maybe was one of the most successful. You, I mean, you were working in an all-black institute, went to an all-black college, you know, HBCU, Howard, where you worked at the NAACP. So maybe that's the rub, I guess, that you infiltrated in a sense, not infiltrated, but, you know, you got in and, and, and you were so successful with your identification as being black that... Right, that yeah, nobody would have ever, nobody no, would have ever guessed. No, had, I mean, no, you know, my, no. My dad writes about in his in his forward. I mean, he's yeah. like, he, she looked black, her vibe felt black, like, nobody right. even questioned that. She was so right. radically pro-black. But it forces us to, like, say, it forces us to think, well, oh, so what is what is this part of me that is rejecting her so much? Mm-hmm. Because it is a vibe. It, it's you know, black is a vibe. It is right. uh, now. I will say it is also. We still have to reconcile that whole melanin part in terms of the biological part, but in terms of just mm-hmm. being um, black, if you will, uh, in, in in America or an African in America, mm-hmm. that that is that is a vibe. That is a thing. Well, that is a culture. And, you, and you've got, yeah, Obama said in his interview with um, Dr. Coates that, you know, really, if you're perceived as African-American, you are African-American. Like, it's all, you know, I mean, you said yeah. the melanin thing, but, I mean, people, I didn't have to say, wave some flag and be like, you know what, I'm self-identifying as black. People knew my work. People knew right. Right, my right. affiliations, and then people saw me, and people just, you know, there was no, there were no questions asked. I was, you know, unde- people would have said I was undeniably black. I was a sister. I was, you know, yeah. in the community. I wasn't an outsider or an ally. And sometimes I wonder when people ask, like, couldn't you have done this all as, like, you know, Afrocentric white chick, or just couldn't you have identified as white? And that, you know, you could have done so much more. You could have done so much, you know, so much better. That bothers me, too, because I think, you know, like, why could a white woman identifying as a white woman, you know, do better work? I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't think that, you know what I mean? Like some of these, some of these Mm -hmm. kind of psychological um, or subconscious affiliations with, um, you know, if you're, if you're white, you're more successful. And and if you, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like claiming blackness is somehow self-destructive or something instead of self-empowering or. Well, the other thing, Rachel, I think is, you know, there's always this thing that people think, well, you know, she's white, she can always go back to her race. And I have had arguments with people and saying, "Um, no, she can't. Mm -hmm. No, No. no, she can't. She can't. Once you cross, once you cross the color line, like you, once you you have black, you can't go back. It's kind of, you know, that old. (laughs) Right. But at the same time, like. You know, in history, even if people crossed it in the other direction and went white, you know, like you couldn't go associate with your black relatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like like you get exiled. I mean, it is such a deep divide, as everybody knows. It is. That you can't just dance around on the color line. It doesn't work like that. Exactly. (laughs) So so in that sense, we need to deny and fight whiteness. I really like this new... Uh, term of white fragility and 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 all of, we we need to fight whiteness, not white people, because it's it's this construct that was created that made mm-hmm. America this economic construct that protected the one percent after Baker's rebellion that did all of this, 
And it was so powerful that colonialism spread across the world, and it's something that all of us are experiencing and, 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 uh, as, 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 as black people. So we're going to fight this whiteness. And let me ask you this. <clears throat> Who is it, who's in your corner? Who do you have to 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 uh, that soft shoulder or, or, or people to fall into at the end of the mm-hmm. day? I can only imagine doing interviews. I know, <clears throat> rightfully so, your guard has to be up twenty four seven. Right. And you were diagnosed with PTSD. Now you probably have mm-hmm. a whole other level of PTSD. Uh, as well, a let's just say I'm, I'm not getting into any new relationships right now. That's for sure. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't dated anybody since, you know, like finding out I was pregnant with Lynx and a week after all this broke, I was a month pregnant and uh, that relationship dissolved, you know, amidst all the stress and um, his dad doesn't ever want to meet him or anything. I mean, most people that dated me, of course, you know, there there were a couple of brothers that were like, wait, I saw her whole body and... And I, you know, like, I never would have guessed that she was, like, four. Yeah, see, that's the you thing. You know, or whatever. So, you know, the it, it identity just, thing, it, there's something there to investigate this. I mean, it really is. Right, right. Everybody's like, did you do your DNA, DNA test and, did you, you know, this and that. And so, um, you know, but, yeah. On a, on and you a, also yeah. have to reconcile, I have to tell a joke here, Rachel. You also have to reconcile. Why, <laughs> how did you get a black booty? <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't even. You got know. a bedoint to do it. You got a bedoint to do it. How does that happen? My sister, my sister is like, there's no way that those are your parents. I just can't even accept that. You know? <laughs> some people just really right. don't. But if, but if I question that, then you know, I'm, I'm some kind of crazy. So well, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, to... I did do like the whole DNA test, and did I have African ancestry? And then it, you know, pulled up, you know, what percentage I was, you know, African and all that stuff. And I wanted to actually put that in my book at one point, but the um, the testing center, you know, I did a uh, certain agency, I don't want to say their name, but they basically balked and said, um, no, those weren't your real results. Those couldn't have been your real results because we, you know, like, we, saw, we saw your white parents, you're 100% European, and that's all we're going to say. Wow. About that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, so anyway, I don't need a lab to tell me who I am at the end of the day, so I'm not going to put that out there. But, you know, it's it's um, it's um a good question to kind of keep asking, and, and you know, is it is it how we feel? Is it what we look like? Is it, you know, how people perceive us? Like, what makes us, you know, black or white or in full color or whatever, you know, whatever we are, all of who we are, I do have some people in my corner. I don't like to publicize their names because I never know if that's really very fair. I'm not trying to take anybody to the chopping block with me, but, um, right. you know, there are a couple of high-profile people and then a few um, just local people, all of my hair clients, you know, stood by my side because they wanted their braids and their weaved. <laughs> so, like, I don't care how you were born. You're going to still do my hair. <laughs> that's all I know. Now the other question is: Is that in terms of moving from fundamental fundamentalism to a mm-hmm. spiritual view, um, how has that shaped your 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 spiritual journey, your spiritual practice, and, and solace? Well, you know, I like I said, I I kind of keep God and and spiritual things at a mystical level, meaning that I don't like to define things and get into like rules and regulations and judgments and um, such as 
the you know the Bible being literally true and whatever you read, that's exactly what it what it is. Because I've seen the scriptures used for many different interpretations and many different agendas and intentions, and a lot of those are nefarious <laughs> agendas <laughs> and intentions. So, um, you know, I just I just can't. So I try to take little truths from different um, different sources, and like I'm cool with knowing that that there's a higher power, there's you know a spiritual realm, and I feel like in that in that realm there's some kind of a weird war going on over me because there's there are Christian people who are praying for me that I that have said so that they're praying that I'm you know made low and destroyed and everything else. And there are Christian people who say that they're praying that I'm uplifted. And you know, <laughs> and there's, there are a couple of voodoo priestesses that, you know, like one supports me, one, you know, wants me to die. So they're like curses being cast and undone. And, you know, so, so it's like, I, wow. I do believe there's power in intention and, and there's some kind of a, a spiritual process and realm that, that exists, but, this is hard you know, for me to make that really literal. You know, earlier in the conversation, uh, Rachel, you had made the the distinction comparison uh, between Christianity and 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 racism and race. And I mean, when you when you met, just listening to what you are going through, you know, between the good Christians versus bad Christians, one wants you dead, one wants you alive. When you mix those two together, racism and 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 religion, you create a sociopath. Mm-hmm. You create a sociopathic human being. That's <clears throat> that 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 is what we're collectively dealing with right now, on both sides, mm-hmm. because you know um, I always say uh, uh, you know sick people. When you're around sick people long enough, you become sick and start taking out some mm-hmm. of their symptoms. And so, you know, so, so some of us need to get a serious healing uh, as well so that right. we can just see you uh, first as just a human being mm-hmm. uh, and then as a woman and then whatever that cultural identification you want to, to, to have or wear, so be it. I mean, who really, I mean, what harm is there in a Rachel Dolezal? Mm-hmm. Honestly. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I hope to do more good, you know, than, than har- I never intended to harm anybody. But I think that there is there is harm in, you know, stealing and exploiting and, and all the stuff that I've been accused of, but but it's not it's not true that I've actually committed those crimes. Um, so so I think that's that's where the misunderstanding comes into play. Is you know am am I this um, symbol of kind of what I've been typecast as, or mm-hmm. am I a person? You know, with because because there's a aggressive commentary and all of that, you know, emotion and everything is very warranted with social justice issues and 
all the extreme um, situations going on with education and criminal justice and everything else. But when it comes to somebody's personal life, to kind of like unleash all of those judgments mm-hmm. and, you know, associations on that person, it's, it's, it's really, to me, been more revealing of, of other people's identity structures and other people's views of race and kind of society's way of um, processing this through knee-jerk reaction and, and, you know, very rash judgments and mm-hmm. feeling like the, the, not just the ability or capacity, but the, the need to oppose, you know, because, because we're so polarized um, right now well, in this country. And I don't know what your next level and journey is going to look like in doing this level of work, but my goodness, uh, I think that if anybody can do uh, the most amount of good and the least amount of harm as it relates to racial race relations would probably be you um, only because of that, for lack of a better term, the cross that you are bearing and carrying uh, right now. Um, I would, yeah, I would, uh, you know, that's why I'm honored to have a, a conversation about race relations with you because you can really understand it in a way that no one else uh, can, including some of my uh, and some of our esteemed scholars. Right. You have a very well, and I think that you know it'd be it'd be great to have that conversation after I come back from South Africa. I'm going. I'm leaving um, this next week. I'll be there for a couple of weeks, and you know the freedom fighters from the Mandela era bringing me down to launch a new movement there. They're calling it a quest for a quest for a non-racial South African society. And um, it's, you know, they're excited for this because they feel like what I represent kind of as a symbol is the potential to really throw away the race worldview that was a part of the segregated state and a part of the apartheid state and continue to be part of the freedom state there mm-hmm. in that the government still classifies people and there's not this ability to self-define and um, one of the, the organizers, you know, defines as himself as Khoisan and not, you know, he, he sees it as um, unfair to just, you know, kind of be described as like African in general or um, black in general because there's so many variations within that spectrum Mm-hmm. So many cultures across the continent, you know, to be Khoisan is a very specific I- identity. And if if he's just seen as, you know, some kind of a generic black guy, then he's not really seen for who he is as a as a Khoisan academic and, and preacher. And um, so anyway, it'll, it'll be interesting to engage with with that community and, and see where maybe that movement goes and, you know, what what country is ready to really take this um, conversation out of the theoretical and implement it on forms and, you know, implement it in, in terms of socially really doing the job of equality, uh, you know, like, are we ready for it? Are we really ready to just unravel the race worldview and the ideas of, of white supremacy that have held us really, you know, in these societal handcuffs for so long? I would love to have a conversation with you once you get back to see what, you know, what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, 
I'll publicly state and say, I'm in your corner. The Philippe Matthews Show is in your corner. We see you. We get you. We understand you. We commend you, and we honor you and support you. So, uh, Thank you. You're very welcome. So, hey, um, whatever it takes um, uh, to break this spell of whiteness, this spell of fundamental Christianity, I guess, in the sense as it relates to race, white superiority, Mm -hmm. whatever it takes, there's a reason why you are here. I believe that you are, there's a reason that you've been chosen to do this. I know you, that sounds kind of la-la foo-foo, but it just can't be accidental that even, you know, now your own parents outed you in a sense that all of this has happened for a probably a bigger reason than you even realize now, because right now you're just in the muck and the mire from it in the aftermath. Okay. I don't think you quite realize yet what that's going to mean in terms of representation for you and also for your children. So mm-hmm. you've got our support. Well, thank you. Uh, come back. And, and I'd love for you to do my live video show. I know you were scared to do live video because of all reasons why, but I'd love for you to come back and do my live video. Uh, well, the main the main reason with that is it's a one-year-old because it's hard for me to whisk him out of his crib and, and put a bottle in his mouth and keep him quiet if I'm on, on, on a video screen. So, <laughs> but thankfully, he, he slept through the whole, the whole interview. I know. It's so, amazing, right? Um, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out and make it through. Yeah. We'll do that sometime. Absolutely. All right. So the book, ladies and gentlemen, of course, if you didn't already know, is in full color, Finding My Place in a Black and White World. Rachel Dolezal, uh, absolutely amazing conversation, amazing human being. I appreciate you. Please come back. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. We'll see you soon next time on the Sleep Matthew Show. Take care, everybody. All right. Bye.